through verse 20. Uh, the sermon text this afternoon, though, is really on verses 19 and 20, but to give us a little more context, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 20. We'll be reading there. Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 20, also printed for you uh, in your order of service. Hear the word of the Lord. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Praise God for his holy word. Friends, one of the the greatest divisions in church history and in the church has been from just four little words that we just read in this passage. This is my body. Those four simple words from Christ's mouth and how they've been interpreted over the centuries have led, unfortunately, to a great deal of confusion over what Christ was teaching. What are we actually eating and drinking of in the supper? Is Christ speaking literally Is this only bread and wine that he is teaching us to eat of and drink of? Or is Jesus pointing to something much greater? Is the Lord's Supper only a remembrance of that one night? Or does Jesus want us to see something much more cosmic going on? You remember from last week, Apostle Paul teaching in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, he refers to the Lord's Supper. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? In the bread that we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? Friends, if we're Christians, calling ourselves followers of Christ to really follow his words and apply them to our lives, then we need to understand what Jesus was teaching, both here in Luke 22 and also in Scripture or other places, that we have a true participation with Christ 
when we observe the supper that he instituted? What does it mean when Christ is teaching us to feed on him and drink of him in the supper? I believe that, unfortunately, one of the reasons that we don't actually appreciate, we don't actually long for, hope for, look forward to the Lord's Supper as much as we should, is because we understand so little of the nature of the special communion, the participation that we have with Jesus, with Christ in the Supper. Supper is very, it's a very important part of our worship service. And the Puritans rightly observed that the Lord's Supper is an earthly encounter with a heavenly Christ. It's a gift that Christ has given to his church, a means of grace, a sign and seal of the promises he's given to us. And so if we're not only to appreciate it, but also even to desire it, look forward to it, then we need to understand what the Bible teaches, what Jesus is saying here in these words, this is my body given for you. This is my blood. I want to do that by looking at briefly four views of the presence of Christ in the supper. Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. And then why it's important to us, essentially. We've been looking at three ways we benefit of Christ in the supper. Now, for those of you who've been coming to Christ's covenant for some time, you know this isn't kind of a normal sermon uh, that you hear. This is a little bit more topical, a little more thematic. And normally we're working our way through an entire book of the Bible. But as I said, this is important for the life of our church as we are preparing to take the Lord's Supper together. And so this is a much more targeted study of what the Lord's Supper is. And as we look today, especially at the presence of the Supper, uh, it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Now, four views of the presence of Christ in the Supper, we don't simply come to the Bible actually just sort of in a vacuum. We come with hundreds of years of church history and people interpreting these passages. So it's somewhat naive of us to just come at this text and this theological question, apart from somewhat taking that into consideration, a lot of ink has been spilled over the centuries about what is the Lord's Supper and what we're doing. Several different views, but there's really four or maybe five primary views. See if I can remember the fifth one, if I don't throw that out. But really four primary views in the Lord's Supper, how to observe it. The first is the Roman Catholic view. Um, Many people would call this transubstantiation. Trans really meaning change or crossover. And in the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, they take these words quite literally, that this is Christ's body, physically taking of his body, of his flesh, and drinking of his actual blood. Now, Roman Catholics will say the accidents, the sort of outward forms of these things don't change, right? It still looks like bread. It still tastes like wine. But they're actually in some way the element, the essence of it has changed when the priest institutes, or I should say uh, gives the words at the Lord's Supper, that Catholics believe this piece of wafer physically somehow is the body of Christ. That's the Roman Catholic view. And then there's a second view of what this supper is, a Lutheran view. Now, Martin Luther, uh, breaking from the Roman Catholic Church, was very concerned to also stay close to a somewhat literal reading 
of the text here. When Jesus says, this is my body, there's a very famous story of the reformers meeting together. And they really had one big topic of debate at this meeting. And they really got stuck here when it came to understanding these words. And Martin Luther is known for sort of pounding on the table in that, in that moment and saying, the words say, this is my body, you know, literally. And Luther would, didn't want to budge from that. And yet he didn't want to hold to a Roman Catholic view either. He saw that as, as faulty. So Luther's view and his um, descendants is that the, the Lord's Supper, although the, the, the bread and wine remain bread and wine, uh, yet Christ is somehow still physically present at the Lord's Supper. So Lutherans would say that Christ is in, with, under, around the substances in a somehow in a present uh, physical sense. So it's not Roman Catholic where it changes over. It's not transubstantiation. They would say consubstantiation. Con meaning with. That Christ is somehow physically present with these elements in the sacrament. So that's a second view. A third view we can just call memorial. Um, the Lord's Supper is simply a remembering of kind of what happened that night or remembering Christ himself and his, and his person. There's, there's nothing mystical going on here. Christ is not present in any way, really. Um, this is simply a remembrance. Um, this is often the view attributed to a man named Uldrich Zwingli, but his view is probably more nuanced than this. Uh, his writings do talk about a deeper significance of the Lord's Supper as a pledge and a seal of what God is doing. But the emphasis in this memorial type of view is that it's just simply remembering like you would a holiday, any other sort of holiday like Christmas or Thanksgiving. There's nothing really supernatural, if I can put it that way, happening in the supper. Um, I'll throw in another view here. That um, Another view, there's really no view at all. There is a very small minority among Christians that we don't have to celebrate the Supper, that Christ um, didn't mean this as something perpetual to observe in the church. There is a very small minority of Christians who teach that we don't have to observe even baptism or the Lord's Supper. Uh, but a fourth or fifth, really, view of the Lord's Supper is a reform view. And this is what we hold to you as Christ's covenant. A reform view of the supper, usually attributed mainly to John Calvin, the reformer, but not just him. And that is that Christ is not bodily, physically present in the supper. The elements, the bread and the wine, they don't physically change in any way into Christ's body. Um, nor is Christ locally present somehow. But there is a spiritual presence with Christ. So when we read Jesus' words here, this is my body, we don't read that literally, uh, just as we don't read other parts of the Bible literally. right? We don't literally cut off our hands in the fight against sin. We don't literally gouge out our eyes in the fight against sin. Um, we don't believe that the waters of baptism literally change into the blood of Christ. We recognize that Christ is speaking symbolically in his language here. Just like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Israelites drank of the spiritual rock in the wilderness, that is Christ. They didn't literally drink a rock, right? They spiritually somehow communed with Christ in the wilderness. The reality is that Christ refreshes and gives life to his people by faith. 
It's what we call sometimes a mystical union. So Jesus is using symbolic language in his teachings that we don't always take literally. Uh, Just like he says, I'm the light of the world or I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the vine. We know that Jesus is not literally saying, I'm a beam of light. He's not literally saying, I'm a door that has hinges and a handle, or I'm a vine that's creeping up a wall. It's symbolic language that heightens the emphasis, right? It gives a much greater gravity to what is going on here. That's why Jesus is using quite graphic language. And you might say, well, why does Jesus have to use such graphic language? It seems kind of, I've heard of Christians who, actually don't want to take the supper sometimes because of so graphic to think of taking a body and, and blood in our mouths. But Jesus wants us to really grasp the depths of what he suffered, of how much he gave his life for us, dying for our sake. And it heightens the significance of that when he uses such symbolic language, right? We understand this. If Jesus had simply said, here's bread, this symbolizes me. Take it. This is blood. This symbolizes me. We know that that somehow sort of waters down the language that and the significance that he's trying to convey to us. So before we get into how to partake of Christ in the Supper, we need to understand why Christ uses this language. And just to sort of unpack this a little bit more, This is getting at really the language or the significance of what are sacraments. Now, for some of us, when we hear the word sacrament, that's a very familiar term in some Christian traditions. You might have heard that before. For others, this is new. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We talk about, we use that word. It gets at what is the Lord's Supper. It's a sacrament. And in the Reformed tradition, we use that word. Other traditions use ordinances. Uh, Sacraments are not a Roman Catholic idea or a word. The word sacrament actually comes from the Latin and from the early church. It's a word that was borrowed from an ancient Roman military custom. A Roman soldier, when he became a soldier, uh, he would pledge his life until that military unit and to the commander and to the emperor. And the emperor is seen as a god. He considered himself a god. And so the soldier was giving a sacred pledge of allegiance, if you will. And he would speak that pledge in front of people. But then, as a sign of his fidelity to the Roman emperor, he would give some sort of token, some sort of physical pledge, maybe a banner, maybe a sword, maybe a shield, whatever it was. And that token was a sign that what he had just spoken was true, that he was really giving his life in service to the Roman Empire and to the emperor. That's originally what sacrament meant. It was a token that symbolized a vow or pledge of allegiance is true. And so the early Christian church adopted that word from the Romans to show we give our allegiance to someone else. And Christ has given us a promise. And he gives us an assurance that what he has spoken is really true. It's not just a word that we hear, but it's actually a visible visible thing that gives us confirmation. So just think of a a modern-day equivalent here. Um, Wives and husbands. You know, on our wedding day, we made vows to our spouses, right? We spoke words, a promise. We promised to do this and not do that. But then we didn't just speak vows to to our spouse. 
after speaking vows, we gave them a visible sign of what we had just said, that this, what I said, what I promised is true, and I'm going to live up to it. Here's a ring that symbolizes that I will remain true to you, and what I've spoken is my word. First we say the words, and then we give a sign or a pledge that it's true. And without the word before the ring, the ring would be kind of meaningless. The ring symbolizes the promises that were made. And that's also, by the way, why the Lord's Supper should always be observed after the preaching of the word. We hear the preaching of the word. We hear God's promises. And then the Lord's Supper simply confirms what was spoken. Without the preached word, the Lord's Supper is just sort of hanging there with nothing to attach itself to, to symbolize and confirm and seal. And so the Lord's Supper is just simply doing that, confirming with our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our hands, the gospel that we've heard, we confirm it with all of our senses. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us when he symbolically says, this is my body. I promise you the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of an innocent one. I promise you forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice. I promise to make you holy by another's blood. I promise reconciliation with God and fellowship with him. And this meal is a visible confirmation of the pledge I've made to you, like a wedding ring on a spouse's hand. That's what's going on, we believe, in the Lord's Supper. Now with that in mind, let's look more closely at what Christ is giving to us, how we actually benefit of Christ at the Supper. If he's present with us, giving us that symbolically, what are the benefits? What are we participating in? Three ways we benefit of Christ. First way is that we participate in a sacrificial feast with Christ. And feasts are the key word here. We partake of a sacrificial feast with Christ. Now, the New Testament writers make it clear that Christ is present in some way. We step back and remember the context here of Luke 22 and the words that Jesus is speaking here. I think that would become obvious to us because remember, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper here when? During Passover, right? The Passover feast. So as we take ourselves back to that night, Jesus and his disciples gathering in the upper room to celebrate the Passover feast, the Passover feast is a sacrificial meal of remembrance. It's not just a remembrance of one person, but an actual event. The Passover symbolized the whole timeline of salvation when God saved his people from Egypt and delivered them to dwell with him. The lamb was the sacrifice and symbolized that someone else had taken the punishment for sin that the people deserved. And the sprinkling of blood that was commanded symbolized the cleansing of sin. And then sitting down and actually eating of the lamb symbolized reconciliation, fellowship with God himself. And the whole Passover meal was meant to remember and commemorate that entire event. So here in in, uh, Luke 22, when Jesus and his disciples are sitting down and partaking of that feast, that's what's in their minds. A Passover lamb was prepared. It was laid out on the table in front of them. They had taken and eaten of that lamb. The lamb that was on the table was always, though, 
a type of another lamb to come. It was always foreshadowing a final sacrifice of the lamb of God. And that Passover lamb, as we know, represented Christ. The disciples had taken part in that Passover sacrifice, but now the lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, is standing there in front of them, and he's being prepared as the sacrifice once and for all. And so he is this fulfillment of the shadow of the Passover lamb. And in front of that lamb that they had been eating of and the bread and the presence of disciples, this is when Jesus takes the bread after the meal and he breaks it. This is when he takes the wine after the meal and he pours it. He says, this loaf of bread, no longer the Passover lamb that is in front of you on the table. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then taking the cup in a similar way, he says, this cup, not the lamb's blood that you saw shed, this cup, which symbolizes the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. And so in that way, we see Jesus himself taking on the role, the final type of the lamb of God, the Passover lamb. So when we take that in the context of what Jesus is doing here, it becomes plainer that Jesus is in a way continuing, he's actually continuing the significance of the Passover meal in the Old Testament, carrying the significance of that into the New Testament. But now the sign is changing, right? It's no longer taking of the the unleavened bread and the lamb that was sacrificed like the Israelites were commanded in Exodus 12. No, the sign is now changed. Now it's Jesus and taking the bread that he broke and the cup of wine that he gave. That's the fundamental meaning that Jesus is teaching us about this supper. And when we feast, we claim a share in his sufferings and in his sacrifice. You no longer feed on a typological lamb, on a symbolic lamb, a lamb that pointed to the final lamb. Jesus says, no, you feed on me, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the meal, similar to a wedding ring, comes after the words of promise. The meal confirms what God has promised to you. And now you take of that sacrifice for sins. Your, atone, blood, your sins are atoned for. You're, um, you're purified by God. And you sit down at a meal with him in fellowship with God. This is the feast that we've been given as Christians. In God's presence to feed on Christ himself. When you eat the supper, then, that's the sacrificial feast that you're partaking of. But then number two, not only do we have a sacrificial feast with Christ, we have a feast that is spiritually nourishing. A feast is spiritual nourishment. You know, as a spiritual feast on Christ, that means the supper is nourishing to our hearts and our souls. When Jesus says, take, eat, and take and drink, this is for your well-being. Just as our our physical bodies need food every single day and water every single day to stay healthy and for nourishment, so too, as Christians, our souls need spiritual food and drink. I don't know if you ever feel in your Christian life like you're weak in faith, like you're thirsty, like you aren't growing. Do you ever feel malnourished? In the Christian faith, 
Supper is given for your well-being. God wants to feed you in your Christian life. This was really brought home to me recently. A couple weeks ago, I sat down to lunch with a friend. Uh, This friend of mine, he works here in China uh, at different orphanages uh, with small children that have special needs especially. And as he visits these orphanages, he's seen um, many times these children, especially with special needs, how they're often neglected. He was showing me on his phone, it's very sad actually, pictures of very malnourished children, um, skin and bones. I'm sad to say it actually reminded me of photos I've seen of concentration camps. Uh, People that you wonder, is this person still alive? Uh, Because you can see all the way to to their bones. And I said, how is this, how is this possible? Uh, my friend goes in there and he says, well, these children, they're not really considered in some ways by their caretakers as people. Um, they're seen as sort of subhuman. And so the caretakers really think that their only job is to barely feed these kids as much as possible. And these kids have, because of their special needs, a lot of trouble eating. They need special care with eating. So as these caretakers take care of them, what, what do they do? They've kind of given up on feeding them nourishing meals. Instead, they take a bottle of milk and some tubes connected to the kids. They poke a hole in the milk, and the milk just sort of dribbles out, and the kids catch what they can. Oftentimes, they end up puking because they can't take it in right. And this is why they're so malnourished. No one's really feeding them a meal. No one's really taking care of them. And I was... I was just struck and very disheartened to see that. My friends, my point is, in the Christian life, God is never going to see any one of his children and want to leave them malnourished. Spiritual, physical bones. His desire is always to feed you with the food that is necessary for you. The scripture is filled with images over and over again of opening our mouths and the Lord saying, I will fill it. Feed me till I want the bread that is no more. I mean, this throughout God's promises, he always promises to nourish us, to feed us, to feast with us. And when you take a hold of God's promises, he is welcoming you, not just to a not just to a bare-bones meal, just milk dripping. He's welcoming you to a full feast, rich spiritual life with him, and in his presence to take care of you. That's what's happening in the Lord's Supper when Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Feast with me. I will fill you. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me in thirst... I will fill. Let him come to me and drink, Jesus says. Friends, Jesus knows that you and I are weak in faith. If you're a Christian, don't let your hunger hinder you from the Lord's table. Let it drive you to the Lord's table. Because it was given for hungry sinners, it was given for those who are thirsting for God's grace. You need nourishment for your soul. I need nourishment for my soul. Open your mouth and Jesus will fill it. And friends, this is one of the reasons why it is so important to regularly observe the Lord's Supper. And my hope is that we will be observing the Lord's Supper 
not just once a month, but every week. Because we as Christians are so needy for God's grace, we need him to fill us, to feed our, our hunger and give, uh, uh, satisfy our thirst. Friends, when you understand the Lord's Supper in this way, it really does change how you approach the table. Because rather than approach the table and say, oh, we're doing this again? You know, that'd be a mistaken way to approach the Lord's table. But to see that the Lord has given us a means of grace to feed our faith, to be present with us in a spiritual way, to see that he gives us this faith, to, uh, this means of grace to unite us more and more to Christ himself, that means you should approach the table expectantly, excitedly, joyfully, longingly, that you need to see that there's something real happening at the table, that the Spirit is working through these ordinary means of grace for your benefit. When you approach the table that way, it makes us excited and prayerful like one of those old hymns sings, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. That's the attitude we should have driving us to the table to participate in Christ himself, to nourish us in faith, because this feast is spiritual nourishment. Well, that leads, that leads me to a third thing that I want us to think about when we approach the supper and we are partaking of Christ, we are partaking of his benefits, and that is, this feast is a gift. It's spiritual nourishment, but it's also a gift. If you stand back again from this text and remember the event that took place here, Passover night, Jesus takes bread, he takes the wine after the Passover meal, and he blesses the bread, he gives thanks for the wine, and then he gives the bread and the wine, and then you look here in Luke's gospel, what does he say? He says, this is my body which is given for you. Not this is my body which you have to come and take. This is not this is my body you have to come and work for. This is my body which is given for you. That's gifting language, right? It's a picture of Christ distributing his gifts to his church. The supper is a blessed gifts, a gift. And that means Lord's Supper is not about your own effort. It's not about your own effort to remember Christ how much work you put into seeking him in the depths of your soul. That's not what the supper is ultimately about. The supper is not ultimately a badge of your Christian profession. The supper is not a work of man. It is a gift from God. Remember that every single time we take the supper. God has given this to me, not because I'm so great, but because of his grace. It's ultimately a work of God. In the supper, Christ assures you and he pledges to you the promises of salvation. Remember the gospel itself. The gospel itself says you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. This is not because of what you've done, Paul says. Not that you may boast. It's a work of God. And so we should receive it as a gift. John Calvin said that by declaring that his body is given for us and his blood is shed for us, Christ teaches that both are not so much his as ours. He took up and laid down both, not for his own advantage, but for our salvation. 
Supper is a visible sermon. It's also a visible gift of the gospel that all your sins are completely forgiven through one sacrifice in Christ. Friends, that is good news. That is very good news because the Roman Catholic Church, for example, a very different view of the Lord's Supper. They teach that the Mass is a sacrifice that is to be continually offered for the living and the dead for sin. And the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. They teach that this work must be repeated over and over again. But the gospel declares that there is a final once-for-all sacrifice that has been offered through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Friends, Christ gives you the supper as a seal, as a pledge of his salvation for your life. Once for all sacrifice, a gift of grace. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, I find it so helpful of what God is pledging to us. He wants to assure us by the supper that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. We often come to the table thinking that the blessings or the benefits we get out of the supper are directly proportional to the amount of effort we put into it. What I put into it is what I get out of it. We maybe subconsciously think. If I get emotional enough, if I pray hard enough, if I concentrate enough, if I am contrite enough, if I prepared hard enough the week before, then I will get more blessings out of the supper. We turn the table of Christ into an altar of penance. The Lord's Supper is not an evangelical altar call, a work that you perform in order to come into the presence of God. That type of mindset unthinkingly leads us to turn the supper into a work-spaced activity that I do rather than a gift from God that he does for me. It turns the supper into a grace, a from a grace-based feast into a works-based punishment. And that's not what the supper is about. John Calvin said the supper is a gift. It does not merely remind us of a gift. Now, I'm not saying that when we come to the table, we should come in an overly casual manner and just flippantly observe it. But in some Christian traditions, there can be an almost unconscious, subjective feeling of oppression when we approach the table because people don't feel strong enough in their faith or they don't feel contrite enough over their sin. Well, friends, the Lord's Supper is for the weak. It's given because of your failures. The Lord's Supper is for the hungry and the thirsty. 
the Lord's Supper is for people in need of God's grace. And so all people, all Christians who repent of their sin and believe in Christ are invited to this sacred meal, not because you're worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in the wedding garment of Jesus Christ in his perfect righteousness. Supper is given, I'll say it again, because of our weaknesses, because of our failures, in order to point us back to Christ and what he's done. And by that token, it's given to increase our faith by feeding on Christ himself. And I want to close with this. With that in mind, also prepare us on how we're to think about how to participate in the supper because the supper reminds us how we are to approach Christ and the table. Let's get this right. Contrary to other views of the supper, Lord's Supper is not just not a work that we perform, but it's also not a way to create faith. In order to come to the supper, in other words, you must have faith in Jesus Christ. Without Christ, without union with him, you and I have nothing. All the blessings and the promises in the gospel are empty unless you're united to Christ. The way you can enjoy the supper, this feast, is only through faith in Christ alone. The main difference between the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the Word is that the preaching of the Word creates faith. The Lord's Supper confirms faith. You must be united to Christ by faith in order to partake of those blessings. That's why Jesus says in John 6, for example, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now, when Jesus says these words, speaking of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's not directly referring to the Lord's Supper there. He hasn't even instituted it yet. He's referring to the faith in him that is necessary to have eternal life and to enjoy the blessings of life that he brings. John Calvin put it this way, as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he received from the Father, he has to become ours and to dwell within us. The union between Christ and believers can only come through the Holy Spirit in a mystical or spiritual way. And apart from that, the Bible says we have no hope. We're without God in the world. Friends, the point is, whoever does not have true faith in Jesus Christ can't truly eat and drink of Christ. Now, some of you might say, well, I worry that I don't have enough faith. Or they don't have faith. My friends, distinguish between weak faith and true faith. Many of us worry that we don't have faith when actually what we have is weak faith. Even though your faith is weak, don't be discouraged. A weak faith receives a strong Christ, as Tom and Watson put, Thomas Watson put it. Christ is saying, only, he, excuse me, Christ isn't saying, if you only have strong faith, then you can come to the table. He is saying, only if you have faith, as weak as it is, even the size of a mustard seed, you come to the table. God's promises are not for the the strong alone, but for those with true faith. 
Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, how do you know if you have true faith? True justifying faith is made up of three things. One, self-denial. True faith says, I can't do this life on my own. I, I realize that my own righteousness is never going to fill me up. Self-denial says, I'm like a sock with a hole in the bottom. Every time I try to do works, every time I try to work my way to righteousness, it just pours out the other end. I need to deny myself. I can't meet God's standard without God's help. I'm going to be judged by God for eternity. And so it turns to a second thing, reliance. True faith rests on Christ and his promises. True faith says, I don't just have a knowledge of God and what he's done, but I say to him, God, my life isn't working. Christ, sit in the driver's seat of my life and take control. I need you to run my life. And by doing that, it also turns to a third thing, receiving. Receiving Christ and his benefits, saying, Christ has fully done what I was never able to do. I need to receive in faith his righteousness. I need to receive forgiveness that can come through faith in him. Now, if you have Christ's benefits, receiving them through faith, you're assured that that benefit is for you. His righteousness clothes you. This is the true faith that is required of you to the supper. One that denies self, that relies on Christ and receives his benefits. And we receive this by faith alone. So when we come to the supper, we do so expectantly. We do so hungrily. We do so thirstfully and joyfully because we believe that all of the standards of righteousness have been met in Christ and they have been applied to us through faith. And so we can commune with Christ in a special way to grow us in grace. He will nourish us. He will grow us in faith through the means that he has appointed. Friends, these are the the blessings that we receive when we partake of Christ in the supper. A sacrificial feast, a feast that is truly nourishing, a feast that is a gift. Let's go to God now and thank him for the gift that he's given to us. Please pray with me.